Welcome to the Asians Redefining Their Success podcast, where Asian professionals share their stories of breaking boundaries and switching into more creative and unconventional careers. I am your host, Yangshi Zhou. Hey everyone, welcome back. And first of all, wanted to give a huge thanks for those who have followed our very own Instagram. If you haven't already, it is at the Arts Podcast, and we just did a Q and A yesterday, which was super fun, and we'll definitely be doing more of those in the future. So make sure you follow us on Instagram so that you don't miss out. And for this week, we have a really, really interesting guest. David Tan comes from a very academic family with. Both parents and sister with PhDs, and he was also on this traditionally prestigious route with diplomas from University of Chicago, Georgetown University, and was getting his PhD at John Hopkins, so all very top colleges in the U.S. When he left to pursue a job teaching English in South Korea. For him, higher education was natural, and leaving it was unthinkable. So I can't wait to share with you how he made the leap, how happy he is now, and how he's actually using his previous background and PhD now in an entrepreneurial way. Hey, David! Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. So you have a super super interesting story, so I can't wait to dive in into that. And before we do that, can you give us a quick background on yourself, what career and you were in, or in your case, what were your、um, the different education levels that you've gotten, and what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. So yeah, so my name's David. I was born in Canada, where I lived until the age of twelve. After that, I moved with my family to the United States in South Carolina, and then to Buffalo, New York. Went to University of Chicago for college, Georgetown University for my master's, and then started a PhD program at Johns Hopkins University,、mm. which I ultimately chose to leave in order to pursue an English teaching job abroad in South Korea. I had always grown up in a very academic family. My father has a PhD. My father's a professor. My sister is about to finish her PhD as well, and my mom is also in. She also teaches at a university, and so from a young age, I'd always been hammered into my head, get a PhD, get a PhD, and so for me that was just a natural course of life. It was as natural as the next step for me as people going to middle school, going to high school, people from high school going to college. And so, for me, it would have been unthinkable to leave a prestigious PhD program to work a job abroad, especially one in which our work is not usually seen as very prestigious. A lot of English teachers here in South Korea, where I'm currently working, are seen as more of glorified babysitters than actual educators. So, whether that's fair or not is a different issue, but that's kind of the perception sometimes. Well, I do not regret doing so, and I'm having a great time here in South Korea. And honestly, I kind of wish I did this sooner. Wow! Yeah, that's really amazing and such a big leap, right? And such an interesting background. So I love to go back a little bit and delve more into. You know, you mentioned that your parents are from an academic background, PhD. So as you were pursuing a PhD at such A prestigious university, right? Like, how did you know that it wasn't the right fit for you? 
I think starting towards the end of college or even during my master's program, I really resented going to classes. Mm. You could take a topic I find extremely interesting, no matter what it is, put me into a classroom, and I will automatically hate doing it. There are academic activities such as writing papers, writing publications, or reading or doing research. I enjoy doing all of those, actually. And I even enjoy being a teacher. But when you force me to do it inside of a classroom, when you force me to write a paper as part of a classroom context, it feels like it's no longer for me, but for as a formality, whereas something someone else is forcing me to do, and I automatically dislike it. And so during my PhD program, I actually was about to, I almost didn't apply, and then my parents pressured me to apply. Mm. And somehow I got in. I didn't expect to get in, but I did. And so I decided it was a good program to go to. From the very first year, although I found the material interesting for my program, I knew in my heart that I wanted to be somewhere else. I would, every semester, I would count down the days until the break so that I could hop on the plane to Korea or to a different country. Wow. And I would always say to myself, like, oh, if only, if only this were to happen, then I could finally go to Korea. Or if only that were to happen. Or like, if only my PhD program were abroad. Or if only I didn't have this limitation. You know, and that's how I knew, like, deep down, I knew what I wanted to do. But I just kept finding either excuses or it was just inertia keeping me from going. And then what inspired you to finally take the leap as well as how did you know that um, that it wasn't just a phase, right? Like wanting to go to abroad or to, to go to Korea, because I think a lot of the listeners now, they have these like hobbies or interests and maybe they're just pursuing them on the side or maybe it's just an idea in their head and they're wondering like, you know, should I go for it or not? So how did you know for you that it was the right thing for you to do. And I know earlier you were talking about how it felt like something you were meant to do to teach English in Korea. Right. So as you mentioned, I, this is something I feel like I was put on this earth to do. Not necessarily just teaching English in Korea per se, but just everything I'm doing here. I just feel like I'm doing what I was put on this earth to do. And it's definitely a very rewarding feeling. Uh, and I don't plan to stay in my particular town forever. But it, I definitely feel like I'm at, I'm at the right start right now. And so how do I know that this was not simply a fleeting feeling or an impulse? I'd actually been really interested in the country of South Korea for a very long time. I would say since at least the second year of college. So since I was 19, I'm 27 years old now. Mm-hmm. And I've never lost interest. I've sustained that interest for over eight years. Studied the Korean language. I watched YouTube videos all the time and just talk about the country as, to a, a large extent. And so having sustained that interest for nearly a decade, I believe that this would not be an, I, I knew it would not be an impulsive decision. And I, I knew that had I not done it, it would have been out of fear or out of some sort of feeling of obligation towards my parents or to my professors or something. Mm. Um, and as for the impetus that pushed me to finally take this leap, during, the P- during a PhD program, you have to take what are called comprehensive exams. And a lot of people pass them on the first go. Some people pass them on the second go. And so I do feel confident in my abilities in my program or in um, the context of what I was doing for PhD. So I was in a political science PhD program, published a lot of papers, and 
in general felt pretty competent in the material, but the comprehensive exam is what you need to advance from being a student to being a PhD candidate in a lot of cases. And it requires a, it requires a specific skill set or a specific set of knowledge. And apparently I didn't deliver that on the exam and I had actually failed my comprehensive exam. Wow. Yeah, and although that sounds like it would be a bad thing, mm. it was actually a huge blessing because although I could have taken it a second time and probably passed the second time around uh, because I knew what to do the second time around, mm-hmm. the idea of studying for the exam again and then, and then sitting for eight hours a day for two days writing the exam just filled me with dread. And, that's how, and then I talked to one of my professors about this and she encouraged me to look at teaching abroad because I told her that was my dream to do. And she's like, don't even bother studying for the exam again. Just do this. And those two things together were the impetus I needed to take that leap. And it was, it was definitely a huge blessing to have not pass the exam. I think that's such a great example of how failure doesn't necessarily have to mean like failure that's end of things, but it's oftentimes it can be really great feedback for us. And that if we fail something, maybe there's another better opportunity for us out there. And maybe we are really like forcing ourselves into this thing when our heart wants something else. So I actually have a similar story where I really wanted to get into, um, so I went to school on the East Coast as well, uh, in Virginia too. I know you went to Georgetown for your master's. Um, I went to UVA and an undergrad, you know, everybody was trying really hard to get into the business school. That was like the prestigious thing to do for undergrad. And I remember, you know, taking all these accounting classes and doing really bad in them and statistics. And then when I applied, I actually got deferred. So it was basically like a rejection, but you know, not quite. I could actually apply again. But that was like a really big turning point for me and that it really got me to thinking, you know, do I actually want to be a part of this? Like, do I actually want to go on the set path? Because I all led to, you know, management consulting and I thinking, which I had no interest in. But I think that's a really great example of oftentimes when we like, quote unquote, fail at something, it's actually a really great signal for us. Right. And what you said was really important. Um, I like how you described it as a signal. Mm. And so, of course, I can only speak for myself. But I believe that many Asian Americans can relate in some sense that we are taught that failure is not an option. You have to do things that, and you have to excel at them. Yeah. Don't, take the, don't take the class that you think is interesting, even though it's difficult because you might get a C in it. Um, don't pursue something without the right answer in life because if you don't become a doctor, you don't become a lawyer, there's no guarantees. In mm-hmm. fact, if you become maybe an entrepreneur or something, I guarantee you will fail at some point. You will experience financial or even emotional hardship at some point. And we're taught not to do that at all. So, of course, I can only speak for myself. But as I said, I think many Asian Americans can probably relate. Mm -hmm. And and so we're taught so much not to fail that we end up just boxing ourselves into doing something that we don't even want to be doing. That definitely resonates. And I think it's just it's hard to create your own path if you don't fail, right? Because you don't actually know what you want. So you have to do a lot of experimentation and do things that feel right to you. And as you're creating your own path, it might not be something that others have carved before you. I love to talk a little bit more about the sphere, right? You mentioned that 
interestingly, if you stayed at your PhD program, it would be out of fear and it was school was the only thing you knew. So did you also have fears around, you know, I'm already in this PhD program, like it's too late to start afresh, just kind of what feeling or what kind of fears came up for you and how were you able to overcome them? Right. So in terms of fear, I as I said, I came from a very academic family. And so the idea of dropping out of anything, any educational program mm -hmm. would have been almost unthinkable. So there was that fear, a fear of, I guess, in some sense, disappointing my parents. That's what they expected of me my whole life. And to this day, whenever they talk to me, they invariably bring up the letters P, H, and D. And um, fear of like judgment from peers, fear of somehow just not being perceived in a good way so especially for like maybe some people who have parents who are immigrants like we worked so we worked so hard to get you here in the united states and now you're leaving yeah that's the same attitude that um, some of my peers had i was speaking with this one girl once and i told her how i if i got a job offer abroad i would drop out the phd program for it and she started going off at me about my privilege like go check your privilege not everyone in the world has this opportunity um it was very frustrating because if i were to stay in a phd program that wasn't benefiting me as in the ways that i needed how would that help anyone who's not privileged i didn't see that but still you see the kind of visceral responses people have to leaving such a prestigious institution for something that is very much not prestigious for something somewhat off the beaten path for something that is not secure so always those are all the fears and thoughts that went through my head and during that time you know what helped you to get past it or not even getting past it but like taking action despite that fear and so as i mentioned um, i knew deep down that i've always wanted to do this and once i failed that comprehensive exam just the idea of putting myself through reading and writing more like 10 more hours or eight more hours of exams a day that just the, the thought of that just was I didn't have words to describe how much I dreaded that and I decided for once to listen to myself mm. listen to what my, my body was telling me listen to what my, my, my heart was telling me Mm, yeah, that's super powerful. And I'm curious, you know, as you told your parents that you're leaving this PhD program, like, how do they respond? Because I think a lot of the listeners are really, they feel held back by, you know, what their parents would think of them and how to deal with that. Since as people who are from an Asian background, there's the whole be obedient with towards your parents and then I'm also from an immigrant family and you know I recognize that they sacrifice a lot for us so I think we're a lot of us are on this like boat where we're not quite sure how to navigate pursuing this dream that we have as well as how to navigate the parental reactions right so as you can imagine my parents did not have the most amazing of reactions <laughs> And, and so just a quick thought about what you said about coming from an immigrant family. I, I think I, I was listening to your other podcasts mm -hmm. and I think either you or someone mentioned that our parents sacrificed so much that so that we shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents definitely gave up a lot. 
And so, but the reason they gave up a lot was to give me a good life. But what is a good life for me? It's not, not necessarily the same route that they took. And so when they sacrificed, yes, I might encounter some sort of financial difficulty at some point, but they gave me that opportunity to have that financial difficulty and come out and, know, and knowing that I'll be okay at the end. So I think their sacrifice helped me have that. It's not to ensure that I have safety forever, but to ensure that even if I fail or when I fail, because it will happen, that I will be able to get back up and that I will be okay. And so specifically their reactions, uh, yeah, many, many, many phone calls, many phone calls from relatives, friends, mm. uh, people in China that I don't actually even know. My parents actually live in China right now. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, they moved to China. My father would message me a lot with deals for me. Son, if you do the PhD, I will do this for you and that for you. I will do this deal. <laughs> Uh, random professors. So my, as I said, my parents are professors. Right. They would have their random colleagues call me, text me, mess, email me, telling me the importance of getting a PhD. So it was just <laughs> nonstop. Like whole campaign. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I definitely, um, I know like for me, there was definitely this rift between my parents as I decided to first move out to San Francisco, California from the East Coast to the West Coast. And then again, when I quit my job and set on this entrepreneurial journey, and then I remember that, yeah, there was definitely like, you know, hard conversations to be had and like periods when they didn't really quite understand me. And now I think they come around in this a little bit in the sense of that they support what I'm doing or they can like see that I'm working really hard at something. So I'm curious for you like what would your advice be for people who are kind of scared to pursue the stream of theirs um because their parents might disapprove and they feel held back by that potential disappointment so a number of things um i for people who are in that situation right now i definitely can relate and i definitely understand uh what you're feeling right now and so my question to you then would be if you're in that situation what is it that you really want? Like, if you were to stay in what you're doing right now, if I were to tell you right now, for absolute certainty, that you're staying in your current position for the rest of your life, how would you react? If I told you that you're staying in your current position right now for the next five, ten years, how would you react? And if I asked you, if you were to have approval for whatever you want from your parents, for your friends, for whatever dream you want, what would that be? Mm. Whatever your dream is, and your parents automatically approve it, your friends automatically, society automatically approved of it, what would that be? And so what people think of you or what people think of your ideas is, is, is in their heads. It's not what's going on in your head. It's not what's going on in your life. And so think about that and think about how you would react if you got their approval and then remind yourself that you don't actually need their approval. Mm, I really like that. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Of course, it's nice to have support. So fortunately, I have, I have a younger sister who is very cl close to me. Mm -hmm. She's also a very understanding individual. So she was definitely someone who was always there for me. And that helped a lot as well. And so if you can have just even one person who understands you or believes in you, I, I think that would make a world of difference. There's also some smaller 
one time when I was handing in my visa application at FedEx to be mailed, Mm -hmm. I told the worker there what I was planning to do. All she said to me was, that's very brave of you. Think about that. A comment from a stranger who probably didn't care what I did with my life. At that moment, I just felt like someone understood me. Mm -hmm. Someone understood that what I was doing wasn't cowardice. What I was doing wasn't failure. It was, it was courage. And it felt really good to hear. And so if you're in this situation where you're grappling with whether to pursue, a alternative, pursue an alternative path, ask yourself what you would do if you got that approval. Find yourself someone who is there for you. Just one person who is close with you, understands you, would be enough. And then hang on to every bit of support that you can whether it's from a stranger or not. Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. I think oftentimes when we think of support, we think of people close around us, but sometimes the people who are closest around us are the ones that, you know, have very strong opinions of us. So I really liked the inspiring story you had of like a stranger caring for you like that. Right. And so I read a book a few years ago called Ten and a Half Things. No commencement speaker ever said by Charles Whelan. He was a professor at the university I attended for my college. And one piece of advice in there stuck with me for so long. And finally, I understand like my parents' mindset a lot better. And the piece of advice was that it was reminding you, your parents don't actually want what's best for you. They want what is good for you, which is not necessarily the same. Ooh. Because Right, because something that's good for you, think about what's good for you. Being a doctor, you're pretty much in a safe job no matter what. Having a tenure, tenured position at a university as a professor, you have a guaranteed job for life. But what if you want a Pulitzer Prize? What if you want to become a filmmaker? You want to become a chef? Those are what would be best for you. Yet those virtually guarantee that you will experience some sort of difficulty at your time, in some time in your life. But parents, they have an instinct in them to not see you hurt, to not see you fail, to not see you suffer. Yeah. They would rather close that door of a Pulitzer Prize or a Michelin star restaurant and have you be safe forever than have you be that star with the risk of failure. That is so, so powerful. And it makes me think about how, um, so I also have a, I have a little brother. He's in high school right now. And I remember as he was growing up, I was like, I don't ever want him to suffer. I just want him to be happy and all this. And then I realized that in order to grow, you need challenges. You need obstacles. By sheltering him or like wishing that he doesn't experience any of those things, it's actually limiting him from his true potential rather than, yeah, like I was thinking about what's good for him instead of what's best for him. And only we know what's best for ourselves, right? Because we understand ourselves the best. Exactly. And in fact, we might not even understand ourselves the best, but we definitely understand ourselves better than people around us, even close ones. And so those who are close to us, I don't want to see my sister suffer. My parents don't want to see me suffer. But there are risks in life you have to take. I I like to listen to a lot of entrepreneurs on YouTube. And I remember in one video, one person said that the kinds of quote-unquote entrepreneurs he worries about most are those who have been spoon-fed and sheltered their whole lives. Because in school, there's a right answer. In life, there are no right answers. You are guaranteed to suffer at some point. And those who have never dealt with suffering or never really dealt with true failure before, 
they don't know what that's like and they don't know how to recover from that. Yeah, it's really not about how many times you fail, but like how many times you get back up again. And the sheltering thing really reminds me of Asian parents, right? Like <laughs> in high school growing up, I was super, super sheltered. I had no sleepovers. My curfew was, I don't know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., not past 10 p.m. So that really, yeah, that super re- resonates. So on the topic of parents and coming from an Asian American background, um, a common question that I get from listeners is what kind of sacrifices should we expect to make, whether it's the relationship with our parents or kind of letting go of these beliefs that we grew up in during our childhood. I'm curious for you, um, what kind of sacrifices do you think that you had to make based on the background that you grew up in? So I guess the main sacrifice that you'd be making in pursuing a career change of this nature would be losing the so-called support from your parents or your family, Mm. loved ones. But the thing is, I actually think that the support they were giving you in the first place was not genuine support. They were not supporting you. They were supporting an idea that they had of you. And so if their support of me was conditional based on the fact that I was, for example, in a PhD, I, I think that's not actually true with support. It'll never be, like, what I do will never be enough. My father, when I was in college, he'd be like, when are you going get, to get your, go to a grad school? Or like, when I was in grad school, when are you going to publish your first, first paper? And then my PhD, when are you going to finish your comprehensive exams? It'll never be enough if it's conditional. And so in that sense, you give up some sort of support. But in another sense, you actually don't give up, you don't actually give up anything and you gain support for yourself. And I think that's more the most important kind of support because you will always be there for you. You will literally never leave yourself. You can be separated by an ocean from your parents, from your friends or family, but you will be with yourself forever, 24 hours a day. Yeah. So if, if you are willing to sacrifice a bit of your parents or your family or friends so, so-called support and gain support for yourself, then ultimately you've won in the end. Sounds like this was a really like transformative journey for you in terms of trusting yourself and learning more about yourself. And like a common question that I get from clients who are on these calls to help them figure out their careers is they oftentimes ask me, what career path should I go into? And then when I direct them inwards and really ask themselves what they want, they tend to be kind of confused because I think it's kind of the first time that they started not looking outward for these external metrics, but like looking inward. So I'm curious, what are a couple of things that like you've learned about yourself during this process that maybe you didn't expect or you were surprised by? Right. So first on what you, based on what you just said, I think that's a really good point as well. A lot of us who have been in school our whole lives, that's all we knew. There is a right answer whereas there's not a right answer in life. And so people who ask you for career advice, they expect you to tell them, this is what you should be doing. Go to career X and then do job Y and then work there for blah, 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 number of years and do this while you're there. That's what they want to hear. But really, we can't tell them that. Only they can tell that to themselves. There was a CEO of a company called Boxed. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's actually Asian American who who gave a fantastic talk at my university my first year is one of the best talks I've ever gone to. And it really helped 
from my perspective. So I did ask him a similar question. I asked him, um, what should I, what, I don't really like the PhD program. This is what I actually want to be doing, but this is the benefit from the PhD program. And this is the drawbacks of leaving. What should I do? And so I, I can't quote him exactly. And I want to do him justice because he gave a really good answer, but the, the, it boils down to do what you know you want to do. He can't tell me what to do, but that he knows that I know what I want to do. Mm. So what, something I learned about myself, and again, I can only speak for myself, but I know what I wanted, and everything that was preventing me from doing that were just excuses. And they were not just excuses out of laziness. They were excuses out of complete fear. Mm. And so for myself at least, I know deep down what I want. And I know what would make me happier and fulfilled. And I can tell you right now, every day, I feel like I'm living my purpose. My salary is not very high, but I definitely do feel like I'm living my purpose. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but everything else was just an excuse. And so something I learned about myself was that the things that were keeping me from doing what I wanted to do don't actually exist. They were all just in my head mm. out of an emotion, a negative emotion. And that emotion is fear. Oftentimes we are the people that keep us stuck and our brain does such a good job of like coming up with all these reasons and excuses like I'm not ready yet or I need XYZ to start or, you know, I need this and that. And it's really that fear that holds us back. And something that I encourage people to do is actually lean into that fear. You know, we feel fearful about pursuing a path that's a signal that it's something that's really important to you and it's something that is risky but the rewards are so so worth it and you know that you have this bigger potential to pursue right exactly so i'm curious for you as you went abroad to teach english and you talk a little bit about the finances aren't a lot so i'm curious how did you navigate prepping for teaching abroad and then dealing with the finances because i think a lot of listeners uh they care a lot about financial stability as it is something that's also you know pretty big in the asian culture right so unfortunately teaching is a profession that generally has a fairly low salary no matter where you are and although it's a fairly stable income you won't be making mega millions doing it I'm fortunate enough that I currently am single and also have no dependents. And so the money I make from, from my current job is enough for me to live on. Mm -hmm. But it's not something I, I, I definitely need to find a way to increase my earnings eventually, either switching careers or finding side hustles to help supplement my income. So coming to Korea definitely wasn't very cheap. The visa application process, the paying for documents, that definitely cost a pretty penny. And the flight wasn't cheap either, of course. And so I was lucky that I had a credit card with a fairly high uh, line of credit. And so that's how I was able to pay for all my expenses in advance. You know, of course, high credit cards have high APRs. I definitely did incur some interest. Mm. But mm. after a few months on the job, I paid it all off. And I think it was well worth it. And so in terms of income in the future, I, I don't plan to stay at this particular job forever. And so I'm hoping to eventually move on to a different 
kind of position where I do have a higher compensation. Mm-hmm. But as of right now, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of advice and YouTube videos made by entrepreneurs and podcasts made by entrepreneurs who are successful and trying to soak in some of the advice. And one project I'm taking on right now is I'm actually working on a ebook that I want to self-publish. Oh, exciting. Yeah, I've been working on it for the last few days. Oh, I also saw that you are, were a translator of this best-selling book on Amazon. Right. <laughs> yes, actually, when I was in college, I actually happened to be fairly fluent in French. Oh, wow. So I translated a book from French to English. And of course, when I told my parents about it, as you could expect, their reaction was, son, don't do that. Concentrate on school. <laughs> but it did end up becoming a best-selling book on Amazon that I translated. So definitely something I'm really proud of. Yeah. And so about the ebook, I want to take this I obtained from my PhD program and monetize it somehow. Mm. You know, a lot of people warn against going to PhDs because it's not lucrative. And it's, it's true. The academic world is cutthroat and competitive. But the ebook I'm working on right now is going to be a guidebook on how to write research manuscripts. During my PhD program, I managed to publish quite a few manuscripts, including in a fairly high-ranked journal. Wow. And wow. so I'm, I'm currently working on, a, on an ebook that I want to self-publish with, uh, with, advice and a, as a, with advice on how to write these kinds of manuscripts. And so if that works out, that will definitely be another source of side income. But of course, with any entrepreneurial activity or any risk, it's possible that not a single person in the whole world will end up buying it. And as I'm writing it, I ask myself, if that happens, will it still be worth it? And the, res- the answer I give to myself is absolutely. Mm, so good that you are motivated by intrinsic motivation uh, rather than you know external motivation. And oftentimes when we're doing things for the sake of doing it, it becomes a lot more successful when we're like doing it for the end goal of a monetary gain. Exactly. And so I like to think of Nas Daily. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, that's one minute. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Can you give a, a quick background for people who aren't quite sure who Nas Daily is? I know him because, you know, I was in San Francisco. I actually went to one of his meetups. Um, but for people who aren't in the U.S., can you give a little uh, background on who Nas Daily is? Right. He had a meetup in Korea recently, but uh, I couldn't go because of work. Uh, anyway, so he had a high paying job in Silicon Valley which he decided to leave in order to travel the world and make short clips to post onto Facebook. And when he was doing it, of course, in the beginning, he wasn't very successful. No one is. But now he's fairly famous and he, his, he's getting a lot of sponsors and making quite a big buck from his uh, videos on, YouTube, on Facebook. He documents travels, he interviews people, and really makes a lot of interesting videos. And so the reason I am bringing him up is because some people might look to him and say, hey, look, he did this risky thing and he became really successful. And that's true. But something I wanted to point out to myself was that does he only get this, this approval from society because he was successful? Mm-hmm. What if his videos never took off? Would it still have been worth it? And so I told myself, like, even if he'd never made it, he still did something that was true to himself that he probably felt that he was meant to be doing. So even if not a single person ended up watching his videos, would it still have been worth it? I would say yes. 
Yeah, definitely. And another really important point to bring up is that when he decided to travel the world and make these videos, he actually committed to making videos for at least a thousand days. So that was three years of commitment right there. So it's not just about going out there and doing things, but also like really finding that thing that you're super committed to and dedicated to as well. And that really comes from that intrinsic motivation that you talked about earlier. That's an excellent point, right? It's when he left his cushy job in Silicon Valley, it's not like he was just like, oh, I'll travel the world on a whim. He had a plan. This plan was not necessarily going to work, but he did have a plan. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm forcing myself to write a certain number of words each day for my ebook. They could be of good quality. They could be of bad quality, but that's what rewrites are for. But I'm doing that every single day and trying to make it into a habit um, until it's finished. Mm, that's really inspiring. And I know something else that really inspires you is also Andrew Yang. So you're a huge fan of him. So <laughs> I'm curious, in what way has he impacted you in terms of the way you think about careers or the way you think about the world, especially since I know you were pursuing political science in your PhD as well? Right. So yes, Andrew Yang, for I guess maybe those who don't know, he's a tech entrepreneur turned presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. And so since this podcast is not about politics per se, uh, I, I guess I won't, I won't go into detail about the policies I like about his or why I, I like his policies. And uh, I will say that I would support him even if he weren't Asian American. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of the cultural aspect of this podcast, I want to call, comment on the fact that he is the first Asian American Democratic candidate and he rose out of nowhere. So I'd actually heard of him back before he became well, more well-known. I was a supporter of Andrew Yang even, I'd, I want to guess, in March of 2018. And at that time, he had not even 10,000 likes on Facebook. So I've been a supporter for a while. And so when I first came to the United States, as I mentioned, I moved to South Carolina. The very first day of school, this kid named Chance said to me as I sat down at the lunch table, don't sit at my table, you little ching chong, mm. you know? Uh, and this was, keep in mind, this was my very first day in a new country. Mm-hmm. Um, so what a great way to be welcomed. <laughs> but um, I responded to him. I don't remember what I said, but his first reaction was, don't speak to me in that ching chong shit because I can't understand it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I probably spoke better English than he did. Yes. Yeah, so, so the idea that Asian Americans in the United States, we don't belong, we don't belong in American society. We, we can re- achieve this level of success, but we can't achieve that level of success. Mm. So since it's a podcast, you can't see my hand motions, but uh, <laughs> right. this, he's like, this he's is, leveling up, yeah. leveling. <laughs> <laughs> this is up to my ear and that is up to top of my head. Mm-hmm. And so seeing Andrew Yang, even if he doesn't end up becoming the nominee, although I definitely hope he does, I think he's already made his mark. He's shown Asian Americans that, it's possible to do something as big as pursue the biggest job in the country, the highest office in the entire country. And so whether he wins the election or not, he's already succeeded in that sense. Wow. That's really powerful. And, and just a side note for the listeners, we're actually talking about Andrew Yang before we start recording and David showed me this pin banner he had for Andrew Yang, even as he's in Korea. So I have quite a few pieces of Andrew Yang paraphernalia, shirts, stickers. It's on my phone too. 
<laughs> oh, wow. Yang 2020 sticker. <laughs> so on the topic of success, how do you define success now versus how you define success in the past? So I'm actually not entirely sure I have a rigid definition of success, and I'm not entirely sure I know what it is. But I think I do know what it feels like in a sense. So success to me is not just the tangible, how big your house is, how much money you have in your pocket or in your wallet or your bank account, but how you feel about all that. And I think for me, success is you know, being able to do the things you want and being happy doing all that, regardless of your circumstances. To an extent, I mean, you still need to be able to eat and live. So once your needs are covered, I, I think I know what success feels like. And what it doesn't feel like to me is sitting in a classroom for at least three hours a day and then going to the library for another six hours, reading material that you don't want to be reading, longing for the days until it's break so that you could travel abroad. Mm-hmm. And so my conceptualization of success before I was one of those kids in high school who was obsessed with colleges, obsessed with brand name colleges. I wanted to go to a top college so badly. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I thought was success before. And having gone to several top colleges, I now know that most people don't really care about the name of your college. In my not line of work, the majority of people didn't go to top brand colleges, but we're all in the same place. And, and so I used to define success by institutional success it could be measured if you couldn't measure it it didn't count if you didn't have rankings for it Mm. uh, someone wasn't automatically better than another person and now it's everyone has their own rhythm and journey and path and it's so I, i don't have a rigid definition but i do know that people who are successful will feel successful no matter what the conditions are Mm, so good and it sounds like success is something that comes internally right it's a feeling so you can't quite quantify it but you definitely know how it feels and the way you talk about your current job and how you're feeling there it definitely feels like your feeling and definition of success yes exactly sometimes I actually feel a little bit guilty Mm. because I'm like aren't you supposed to hate work why do I look forward to going to work why do I love making my students laugh whether they're laughing at me or with me either is okay as long as they're laughing like why do I look forward to my job I feel guilty Same. I'm like, can life be this good? Is life really this good? (laughs) (laughs) Love it so much. Um, And the question that I ask all of my guests is, what is your favorite career resource or book? The book that I read over and over and over again was the one I mentioned earlier, 10 and a half things no commencement speaker ever said. It's Mm. a really short book. You could probably finish it within one or two hours, but Within those few pages, there is a wealth of advice, not, not least of which is the fact that your parents don't want what's best for you. They want what's good for you. Mm-hmm. And so just like any other career coach or any other advice book, he can't tell you what to do. But that book really helped me put a lot of things into perspective. I gave it to my cousin as a gift, and I uh, recommended it to a lot of my friends who are currently grappling with such a situation of not knowing what to do in life. Mm, amazing I also have a book that's like that and it's called designing your life it's a book that I often gift people to um, and lastly what parting concrete advice do you have for those who are listening right now and they are contemplating you know whether they should go for that less traditional career and so every situation is different 
And for those who are in that situation, decide for yourself what is important to you, what you value. It is possible that someone's situation means that even though they have something they want to do, that they, at least for the time being, can't do it for one reason or another. And that's completely fine. Be true to yourself. Evaluate like your current circumstances and see if there's a way you can pursue a non-traditional career either now or find a way to work towards that later. So even if your current situation doesn't allow for you to do it, surely there must be a way for you to prepare yourself for it. For my position, for example, even before I took the plunge and applied for this job, I was working as an English teacher online mm. to make some side money during my PhD program and get some experience. If you want to become a writer, you could write an ebook online while you're working a full-time job, for example, and see where that takes you. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of little steps that you can take now to help you get ready for when that opportunity comes. So for those who want to start teaching English abroad, what is an immediate one or two steps that they can take? Well, one, you can get the TEFL certificate at a very basic level. A lot of the jobs require it. Mm. But something else is for this line, line of work, so my personality is one that's kind of very silly. I like to make dumb jokes. I like to be really ridiculous and animated. So I feel like my personality is really suited for this job. And so if you really want to become an English teacher abroad, especially for younger students, practice being okay with being ridiculous. Mm. You know, make animals, learn to make funny animal sounds, uh, learn to make fun of yourselves. That's definitely something very helpful in, in my line of work. Mm. Would you say that's you are also being like more playful and maybe even being more of yourself as you're doing these kind of ridiculous things, like allowing yourself to do that? Absolutely. And so when you've, whenever you do a presentation in a PhD program, it's a very formal kind of presentation. The way you speak, you use a different register. And although I'm capable of doing that, I have a lot more fun and I enjoy just being silly a little more. Making animal sounds, acting out uh, scenes from the uh, scenes from my powerpoints or the textbooks. That sounds uh, like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I definitely enjoy doing it. Mm, and where can we find you for your travels or advice? Is there a, a good place to reach you at? Uh, as of right now, I only have some pro like personal online social media pages, but in the future, when I finish writing my ebook and possibly start a blog. I'll definitely share that with listeners when I start doing that. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for coming out to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So many goodies in this episode, right? If you can think of one person in particular who would find today's message really helpful on their career change journey, please, please share this episode with them. It can make a huge difference. And as a big thank you for being here, one of the most common questions that I get is, how do I get unstuck? And so I put together a free guide that you can use to help you break out of the rut and start taking steps towards a career you love through a Get Unstuck side project. You can get that guide for free over at onemonthprojects.com slash get unstuck. Enjoy and see you next week.